You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading comes today from John 6, beginning in verse 33. I'll be reading first in Spanish and second in English. We do this occasionally so that we are reminded of our global faith. It's a glimpse into eternity when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around God's throne, worshiping him together. Amen. Amen. El pan de Dios es el que baja del cielo y da vida al mundo. Señor, le pidieron, danos siempre ese pan. Yo soy el pan de vida, declaró Jesús. El que a mí viene nunca pasará hambre, y el que en mí cree nunca más volverá en tener ser. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today is the first Sunday of a season on the church calendar that is called Epiphany. And traditionally, Epiphany begins 12 days after Christmas. We come out of the Advent season where we've remembered the birth of Jesus Christ. And then we enter into a long season where we celebrate the manifestation of Christ. And this word Epiphany means to show or to make known. And the season focuses on the biblical accounts where Jesus Christ is revealed to be the divine Son of God who alone is worthy of our worship and worthy of our devotion. And what we're going to do this Epiphany season, how we're going to celebrate this season, is by looking at seven famous statements in the Gospel of John known as the I Am Statements, where Jesus declares and really discloses his identity in very beautiful, very unique ways. And today we're beginning, as you know from the passage, we are beginning with the statement, I am the bread of life. Who is Jesus? He is the bread of life. In the 1970s, a a group of researchers sought to understand the dynamics of happiness or overall life satisfaction and what caused increases or decreases in people's happiness and satisfaction. And what they did was they gathered two very different groups of people in order to study these people. The first group were those who had recently won the lottery. The second group of people were those who were recently involved in an accident or some sort of traumatic experience that led to paralysis two very, very different groups. And against all assumptions, they found that overall levels of happiness hadn't moved very much for either of the groups. Those who were unhappy before winning the lottery were unhappy, filthy rich. And here's the interesting part. Those who were generally happy people before being paralyzed we're still happy people after their traumatic experience. And what they determined 
in their research was that the pursuit of happiness, which is, by the way, like a foundational American value, it's in our founding documents, for goodness sake, that the pursuit of happiness is a pointless waste of your life. To pursue happiness is a waste of your life and a waste of your time. That the more that we grasp for, the more that we achieve, the more that we get the thing that we thought would make us happy, what ends up happening is that we just require more stuff in order to sustain that feeling. It doesn't lead to greater satisfaction. It just creates a hunger for more and more and more and more. So two of the people leading this research, uh, Brickham and Campbell, coined this term to describe this more, more, more thing. They called it the hedonic treadmill. And they concluded the only way to permanently increase your satisfaction is in life is by figuring out a way to get off the treadmill. You've got to figure out a way to break the cycle of I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. How? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because research can show us the problem, but they had no suggestions for the solution. This term, uh, hedonic treadmill, was coined in the 1970s, but this is as old as humanity. It's something that we see here in the people in John chapter 6, and it's something that we experience today as well. We are all seeking something. We're all seeking something, that thing that we think is going to bring us satisfaction. If I just had the fill-in-the-blank, then I would be happy. If I just had this thing or this person, then I would feel full. Then my life would be complete. The job, the house, the car, the relationship, the child, the better physique, a little more money, a little more sex, a little more respect, a little better grades, one more degree, a little bit better school, on and on and on. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. But even if and when we do acquire whatever that is, whatever you fill in the blank there, we find that it never quite brings the satisfaction that we thought that it would bring. In the words of the greatest showman, it's never enough. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. No, I'm not going to sing this. Towers of gold are still too little. Think about these words. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. See, Jesus here in John 6 shows us the reason for this. The reason that it will never be enough is that we have a spiritual hunger that no amount of perishable things could ever satisfy. The writer of Ecclesiastes would say it this way, that God has put eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, the capacity for eternity exists within every human heart, man, woman, child, religious, irreligious, and, and until we find that something that is imperishable, until we find that something that is eternal, you will forever hunger. And you will never experience 
the satisfaction that you crave, the whole world will never be enough. Tim Keller put it this way, there, there's an emptiness at the center of the human ego. It searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, a sense of purpose, and then builds itself on that. And of course, as we're often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small. It's going to rattle around in there. My guess is that for a lot of us, we're experiencing that rattle. The discomfort and the frustration and the disappointment of that rattle. Now, something to note here, this is a, an extremely dividing moment in Jesus' ministry. Because at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus has thousands of adoring fans following him because he has just multiplied one small boy's meal into feeding the 5,000 plus. But at the end of John chapter 6, which is a very long chapter, but it is still just like a 24-hour period, Jesus has whittled this entire huge group down to just a few followers. Jesus has many fans, a few followers. And this is because of the polarizing nature of the words that he speaks. Jesus is very careful with what he says, but, is, but Jesus is also very confrontational. And as we, we're going to see in just a moment, in John chapter 6, Jesus is challenging everyone's motives. No one is safe. Jesus is going very confrontational here. And he essentially says there are two types of people. There are two types of people here in John chapter 6. There are two types of people sitting here. There are two types of people on the live stream. Those who are wasting their lives pursuing the wrong things and those who have discovered what true life is all about. Now, before you confidently determine who you are, before you confidently say, like, well, I'm in this category, before you comfortably say, well, I'm a Christian, of course, I'm a person of faith, clearly I'm someone who is pursuing the right thing, before you say that, let me remind you that all of this here in John chapter 6 is occurring in the synagogue among religious people who show up looking for Jesus. They're in the right place, seeking the right person, doing the right things, and yet in just a moment we're going to see Jesus says to the majority of them, you need to reconsider what you're really after. You need to rethink your life entirely. Why are you here? Why have you come all this way? Because clearly it's not me that you're seeking. Now I think this passage, there's a lot of setup here, but there's a purpose behind this. I think this passage should challenge every single person here, despite your religious devotion. For those who are not religious and would admit it, those of you who seek satisfaction in things like people or possessions or opportunities or whatever, this should challenge you to see the emptiness in these pursuits and really to see the fleeting nature of it all. This passage should challenge you to ask very honestly whether or not you are really satisfied in the life that you're living. Be honest with yourself about that. 
But this is also challenging for those who have religious devotion. This should be challenging for professing Christians here today as well. This should challenge you to ask whether or not you are satisfied in the life that you're living as well. I thought about this today. There's not a lot of times that I've come up here and asked Christians, are you really satisfied in your life, in your Christianity? Are you fulfilled in this? Is your life marked by deep soul satisfaction? Can you say today, like, I'm fulfilled? So let's explore that first theme here just a little bit further. Let's look first at pursuing. Now, after Jesus had performed the feeding of the 5,000 with just a small portion of food, that's a sermon for another day. John 6 says that at night, Jesus crosses over the sea, walking on water. That's also a sermon for another day. And the next day, the people that he's just fed wake up. They're looking for Jesus, but they don't find him. They realize that some boats are missing, and they figure he's on the other side of the sea. So they all enter into their boats, some by foot, some by boat, and cross over after him. That's where we pick up the story in John 6, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, that's a strange question. When? What a weird question. Rabbi, when did you come here? He just crossed by sea. When? How about, how did you come here? Religion gets pretty stale and boring when you're asking the wrong questions. When did you come here? How about, how did I come here? And also, it's interesting that they call him Rabbi. Rabbi is just another word for a Jewish spiritual teacher. So clearly they understand that there's something special about Jesus, but clearly they are not grasping the full scope of who this Jesus is because he just fed 5,000 people miraculously and he just crossed the sea walking on water. Clearly he is more than just another spiritual instructor. Verse 26 Jesus answered them, doesn't answer their question. Jesus has the right to not answer your question, by the way. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. See, Jesus is being very confrontational here. You're only here because your stomach is full. He sees right through them. And friend... He sees right through us here today. He says, you are here. You are seeking me because of what you can get from me. I am a means to your own end. That's why you're here. Now, often faith is going to begin like that for many people. In fact, maybe all of us that's how faith in Jesus began. We, can't, we come to Jesus for something good. We come to Jesus for a feeling of forgiveness. We come to Jesus because we're alone and feeling isolated. We come to Jesus because we're really in a mess and we need his help to get us out of it. That's not entirely wrong. It's just not entirely complete. And the truth is, if this is why you sought Jesus, then your faith has to mature. You have got to go from desiring something from Jesus, this is where you say amen, to desiring Jesus himself. 
All right, that's good. From desiring something from Jesus to desiring Jesus himself because it is only when your ultimate desire is Jesus that you will experience ultimate fulfillment. Martin Luther put it in some very strong language when he put it this way, I had rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Think about that. How many of us can say that this evening? I'd rather be in hell with Christ than have heaven without him. That's how you know you're pursuing Jesus, not for what you get from him, but to get him. And so if you come to Jesus simply to get what he can give to you, then in the long run, and maybe you're experiencing this right now, again, this is a time to be honest with yourself. In the long run, you're going to get disappointment, you're going to get frustration, you're going to get doubt, you're going to get emptiness, and you're going to get what I hear from a lot of Christians, boredom. Just bored faith. But as we see here, if you come to Jesus to get Jesus, then he promises that you're going to get satisfaction thrown in. He continues in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is how you know you're missing the point of faith in Jesus Christ. When your relationship is based on the mentality, what must I do? I think a lot of us, or maybe even here today, with that primary question on our minds, God, what must I do? So here's the question. Here's the litmus test. Is your Christianity marked by what you achieve? Or is your Christianity marked by what you receive because this is going to determine whether or not you're satisfied in Jesus one leads to tired anxious bored grumpy religion which by the way is no way to live and the other leads to lively hopeful joyful Christianity Jesus says the son of man We'll give it to you. What is he talking about here? He's talking about salvation being a gift of grace. Undeserved favor. But clearly grace does not fit into their like religious paradigm here. Clearly they're not understanding this. And they respond, okay, tell us how to work for this eternal food. Verse 29, and Jesus answered them, this is the work. This is the work of God. Here it is. That you believe in him who he has sent. You catching this? Eternal life, forgiveness, deep soul satisfaction, God's approval, his unending love, his transforming power. All of it. This is, some, this is not something that you work to earn it's something that you must and can only receive with the open hands of faith. Jesus says, believe him whom God has sent. You know what that tells me? 
That tells me that we all need to determine to give up our pursuit of happiness and begin to pursue the one who has first pursued us. Give up the pursuit of happiness and pursue the one who first pursued us. But then there's a shift here in this passage. A shift from focusing on pursuit and pursuing to then focusing on perceiving. So let's look secondly, perceiving. And what I mean by perceiving is to discern, to see with understanding. There's a difference between seeing something and understanding what we're seeing. Look at me in verse 30 through 31. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is a reference to the Old, pas- uh, Old Testament passage of in Exodus where the children of Israel in the wilderness and they're starving and God sends manna from heaven every day except the Sabbath day for them to eat. And so they say, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do? What's your little trick? Again, this is how you know you're missing the point of faith in Jesus. You say, I just need one more sign. Just one more sign. Just one more thing to verify. Okay, Jesus, one more time. Okay, six months down the road. One more time. You mean more than what you've just seen? Jesus just fed the 5,000. Jesus just walked on water, for goodness sake. And now they demand one more sign. You know what that illustrates? Is it doesn't matter how many miracles you see. If you don't believe, it's never going to be enough. You don't need more verification. You don't need one more sign. If you're not going to believe, you're not going to believe. I know from my own life, I can look back and think of these moments, undeniable moments where God moved miraculously in my life. But guess what? I didn't believe, and it left me completely unchanged. We often think, I've got to see it to believe it. You ever heard that before? You ever said that before? Because that's clearly what the people here are saying, that we may see and then believe you. But the more accurate approach to faith is believe, and then you will see believe and then you will see look at me again in verse or look at me in verses 32 through 33 Jesus then said to them truly truly I say to you it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world it wasn't Moses it was God you're talking about Moses for her It was God who sent bread. You're still thinking in human terms. You're still looking for a savior that's going to fit your human expectation. And as long as you're looking for a savior that's going to fit your human expectations, then you're never going to perceive who Jesus really is. You're going to miss him completely. You need something more than what humanity can offer. 
You need something more than what this world can offer. You need something more than even what your religious upbringing can offer. You need something, definitely need something more than what you yourself can offer. You need the bread from heaven, Jesus says. And you will never resolve that spiritual hunger by looking to anything less. Verse 34, then they said to him, sir, we are convinced, we're in, we're bought in. Give us this bread always. In other words, okay, we're sold, where is it? Is it like behind your back? Where do we look for this bread? What does it look like? Do we hold it? What, like, what is it? Still not getting it. Still not getting it. Now, I make uh, a lot of assumptions about passages sometimes, um, so I'll just be honest. I'm thinking about this moment as Jesus is being so plain with them, so clear with them, and they're like, all right, we're in. Where is it? Uh, there's almost this moment where I imagine Jesus being like, oh, gosh, you're going to actually make me say it. Okay. Okay, guys, listen up, class. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. I am the bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This bread isn't some abstract idea. The bread isn't a thing. The bread isn't a system. The bread isn't a tradition. The bread isn't a feeling the bread is Jesus himself. But what we have to pay attention to here is that we can see Jesus, we can see the bread and totally miss him. Because Jesus says in verse 36, but I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. Here I am and you don't, yet you don't believe. So there's a difference between seeing and perceiving. We can observe Jesus. We do that every time we gather as the church. We're doing that right now. We can observe Jesus. We can listen to his words, but we can fail to behold him. We can fail to perceive who Jesus is. And so the question is, how do we go from observing Jesus to beholding him in a life-changing way? from standing right in front of him to truly receiving who he is? Well, that's the important question at the heart of the epiphany season. Consider the phrase, I had an epiphany. I had an epiphany. It's something that comes to us. It's a realization that breaks into our consciousness. It's not something that comes from within. It's something that comes from outside of ourselves. And what Jesus describes here is a really important theological idea. That it is God alone who can open our eyes to see. And it's God alone who can open our hearts to believe in Jesus. Beholding Jesus for who he is, receiving Jesus and all that he is, is itself a grace from God. He goes on to say in verse 36, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's the point. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, behold him. Believe in him, and you too will be raised with him. Behold, believe, and be raised. Now let's look finally, and this is really where it gets personal. Let's look finally at partaking, because it's weird to talk about bread without consuming. We skip ahead just a little bit. There's a lot of scripture here to cover. I'm realizing that right now. But let's skip ahead to verses 47 through 49. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Just in case you didn't get it. Again, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and guess what? And they died. And they died. So Jesus says that there's a huge difference between staying alive and living. There's a huge difference. A life of staying alive, a life of survival, I think, which a lot of us feel like we're just staying alive. It's just survival mode right now. But a life of staying alive is just simply, think about this, pushing back the date of your death. Eat, drink, Take care of your body, fill it with some good things. You're just kicking the can down the road for when you kick the bucket. Now, in your staying alive, you may even eat good. You may eat uh, Whole30, TB12, no gluten, vegetarian, vegan, filet mignon, creme de la creme. You may be eating really good. You may even, like the Israelites, eat the manna that fell from the sky. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. God sends food from heaven to be picked up off the ground and eaten. But the very best, think about this, the very best that any of this can do is just push back the date of your death just a little bit. The best that this world has to offer is just simply prolonging when you will finally be put six feet under the ground. The person who eats tonight at the three Michelin star restaurant and the person who is going to scrounge out of the dumpster behind the church, they both have the same likelihood and chances of dying, 100%. The one with everything and the one with nothing are confronted with the same reality. The bread of earth, Jesus says here, sustains our existence. But the bread of heaven gives life. Look at me in verses 50 and 51. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. That's a strange sentence. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my what? My flesh. Life, satisfaction, freedom, forgiveness from sin, healing, unending joy, communion with God, eternity. It all comes to us freely. That's grace. But it cost Jesus everything. How does Jesus deliver us from the power of death and give us eternal life? He makes it clear. He does it by offering up his flesh. He does it by submitting himself to every single one of our fate. On the cross, Jesus tasted death so that you and I could partake of his life. So that when we do die, death would just be a shadow that we pass through into eternity. So that death would no longer be our enemy that takes us under, but just a shadow we pass through with our good shepherd. To eat of the bread from heaven, and there's a lot of controversy around this passage, gosh. But to eat of the bread of heaven, I believe, I believe means to partake of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by faith. To take in all that he is, to take in all that Jesus has obtained for us, to feed on his abundance, and to allow his life to expand within us, to allow his fullness to reach every single void of our heart to overflowing. There's a popular phrase that you've probably heard. It says that only you are responsible for your happiness. And in a lot of ways, I appreciate that phrase because it means like, I'm not responsible for your emotions. But it's not entirely true. Because Jesus tells us that as our Savior, he takes full responsibility for our satisfaction and joy. Now, and forever. And he promises something huge here. He promises that if we come to him by faith and we receive all that he is by faith, we will never hunger again. We'll never hunger again. As we look back at 2021, there was, as I mentioned, probably a lot of rattling going on inside as we sought to satisfy our really anxious souls with lesser things, filling our lives with just as much stuff as we could in order to get through a, just a really horrible year. And as we enter into 2022, there's probably a lot of that rattling going on. But what we need to understand is that God's fresh mercy and grace is coming and meeting us right now at this very moment. And that grace is inviting us to replace those things with something greater in Jesus. And again, Jesus is confrontational. And so I don't want to hold that back. I don't want to like pull that punch. 
And I believe that Jesus is challenging us in some really hard, tough love sort of ways today through this. And I think some areas that he's challenging us is to begin to assess our appetite. To take assessment of our spiritual and practical consumption in our life. To begin to ask ourselves important questions like these. What are you feasting upon? What is filling you? What are you feeding your insatiable appetite with? Or questions like these, what do you need to repent of filling your life with that God has forbidden? Or a question like this, where do you need to repent of overindulging on good things? What habits need to end? What habits, new habits need to begin in order to make sure that you're being filled with the right things in order to ensure that you're being filled with the life of Jesus Christ? What things need to stop right now in the power of Christ? What things need to begin right now for the sake of your soul? And my prayer, the prayer I want to pray for us, for myself, for you, for us as a church, for those who are joining online, is actually the sanctified prayer of the Apostle Paul that he prayed for the church in Ephesus. And I want to make this our prayer tonight. And it goes like this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you, and listen to these words, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's my prayer, that through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ dwelling in our hearts richly, that God would take his fullness and fill our souls with him. Amen? God, thank you for...